Hello, and welcome to our new episode of Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we talk about all things acting, the craft, the business, the mindset, and everything in between. I am Andrea Helene. I am talking to you from Mallorca, Spain, and I am joined by my coaching actor heavyweights here in Europe, Gary Condes in London. Hello, Gary. Hello, Andrea. Hello, and greetings from London. Thank you. How are things there? They're very good. We're also joined, of course, by our editor-in-chief here, Brian Casp from Prague. Hi, Brian. Hi, Andrea. Good to talk to you. I'm back in Prague. Excellent. Actually. Back from yeah. your shoot, and you need to tell us all about your shoot. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you all about it, but I'll tell no. you some stuff about it. All right. It. Give us yeah. some scoop. So this week's topic is very interesting. We wanted to talk about the impact of acting and investing oneself emotionally on one's mental stability. Like, is there a dangerous aspect to what we do in terms of its impact on our psychological well-being? It's come up before, and recently somebody that Brian has worked with has been delving into this idea. So we're going to be exploring that today. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, we're going to talk with each other about what we've been up to. And Brian, why don't you lead us in? Okay. What have you been doing on this shoot? Well, I was shooting on a movie in Serbia, as I think I mentioned. And since we last spoke, I have done my day of shooting and it was just really great. I'm working on a comedy and it was really, really fun to be able to be fun and funny and to feel the wave of the jokes that were coming through. And to be honest, to watch the people who I would consider real comedians, because I don't, you know, I don't practice that in my own life, really, to watch the real comedians really go at it and really work on the timing. And the director was adept at picking out the comic flow mm -hmm. and gave me a lot of adjustments. Not so much that I was doing it wrong the first time, but just to, another way to go. And he said, well, try it to be more this way or more that way. And, and it was really fun to play in a really fun mm -hmm. environment. And mm -hmm. everyone was just lovely there. And hopefully I can stay in touch with some of the people that I met. Mm. It was a really fun day of work. I even got to improvise with the main comedian who was there, which was a little bit scary, but quite fun, actually, to try and come up with some zingers in character. Uh -huh. It was good. Do you feel that you got the support that you needed in that setting to be able to do that? Yeah, I did. Mm. I felt like the improvisations that I was coming up with were welcome. Mm -hmm. Not all of them hit in the way that I might have wanted them to in terms of like, oh, I'm funny every time. But certainly I was able to play the game with the other actors that I was working off of. Mm -hmm. And the pace at which the comedic scenes goes, it's very fast and it's very free and kind of really trying to dig into those moments and to really find them and watching the other actors digging into the moment and trying to find as much. It's kind of like when you're mining for gold mm -hmm. and you're just trying to get as much of that ore out as yeah. you can. And it was great to watch them do it. Well, that's wonderful. So it sounds like all around a very positive experience. Yeah, I loved it. So maybe we'll see you in some doing some more comedy. I would love to do mm -hmm. more comedy. Yeah. What about you, Gary? What have you been doing over there on the island? 
Well, I've also been on a shoot, but not as an actor, as a coach. I I think I've mentioned this before. And, you know, like Brian, I think this is the evening of NDAs. Um, Mm -hmm. So (laughs) generalized detail. Um, (laughs) Just um, imagine. NDA, by the way, for for our listeners who don't know it, NDA is a non-disclosure agreement, which sometimes one needs to sign if a project has some level of secrecy attached. Most times. Right. There's a stage when it's difficult. You're by contract, not allowed to discuss certain aspects of the project. So an NDA is the name of the document. It is indeed. Mm. So yeah, I've been working with my client on a TV series produced by one of the two big streaming platforms. And um, I've been working with her a lot over Zoom. And we met face to face recently just a couple of times because we could, but she had some very unexpected scenes and she needed something happening very quickly. So I went down and visited her on set. She had some new scenes and she was panicking and I had to kind of jump in and be the practical coach Mm. um, rather than the prep coach that I have been, sort of drill lines, make some quick choices and try stuff out and try and sort of really get stuff happening quickly. So there was a real necessity to really focus on what was essential in the time that she had. How much lead time did she have for new scenes? They weren't huge scenes, but she wanted to obviously do the best she could because it's a huge show. She was given them two days before, but she was shooting one of those days. So really she had like 24 hours to turn it around. Mm Mm-hmm. And she'd worked on them, but she just wanted someone to be outside to be able to sort of bounce off and try things out and just to leave nothing to chance. Mm-hmm. Were you able to be there for the filming of it as well? Yeah, I was very much in the background, obviously, but I was allowed to just stand right right at the back and uh, have a look. And, you know, I met some of the people. I met the director very quickly and the showrunner very quickly. And, yeah, it was all cool. So it was really nice to get off Zoom and... Mm-hmm and be somewhere where that next door was, it was all happening. Yes. What have you been up to, Andrea? I have done some audition coaching and I'm working on preparing for an upcoming workshop about uh, self-taping and it took a little time off for Mother's Day. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I always have to feed the soul. We've talked about that actually before, that we need to give ourselves time to participate in life so that we have something to actually draw from when we're performing. Mm-hmm. or writing, creating in any way. So yes, I gave myself some time off this weekend and it was quite wonderful. Went on a boat and I felt free. It was like the first time I've gotten <laughs> off the island since August. So mm-hmm. it felt really good to literally be off the island on the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all is well here. Very but, nice. Yes. And are the audition coaching, is that clients that you've worked with before yes. or is it... Indeed, yes. With this actress that I've been working with on a number of projects. In fact, she had a Zoom audition that we were preparing her for, uh, which I think ended up going very well. But it's a very interesting dynamic, I think, that actors are faced with when they are now transitioning from self-tapes to Zoom auditions. Mm -hmm. And there are some things to keep in mind about eye line and listening and where your reader is going to be. And so we got into that a little bit to prepare her for a different, maybe a different kind of nerves that come up almost. She's very, very skilled, but I would acknowledge that when you know you're once again live with the casting team, there's a different feeling in the, in the belly than Mm -hmm. if you know you're doing a self tape and can do it 15 times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's me. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right, let's get into this, huh? Yes. Let's talk about psychological harm. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think you're on the wrong podcast there. That's next door. Yeah, exactly. It's being hit on the head lessons in here. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters your audition, and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So uh, a former student of mine who was writing a paper, not just on the Meisner technique, but looking at how various acting techniques deal with this aspect of the clash between the necessity to be open and emotional in our acting work and the fact that a lot of the acting circumstances that we're going to have to go through are extreme and can be painful or potentially harmful or triggering, and how each technique deals with getting into that emotion and then getting out of it and becoming more whole and more balanced at the end of it. So that's basically the impetus for us discussing this now. And I have my own thoughts on it, but I I was very interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it because we've talked before in other podcasts about effective memory, these Strasbourg techniques, and it's certainly something that, Andrea, I know you have a strong feeling about. I think, Gary, you've mentioned mm. it as well as something that is not ideal for handling this emotion emotional stress that we put ourselves under. But I wanted to hear your guys' other solutions, maybe also experiences if you have had students that have had trouble keeping an even keel with their emotional. And, and I thought that could be something that the listeners could really benefit from of warning signs or coping strategies of how to deal with the various emotional stress that we might be under just by virtue of what we have to do as actors. Mm-hmm. Gary, Brian tossed it to us. I'm going to toss it right over to you. All right. What comes up for you when you hear this, first of all? Do you have some specific experiences either as an actor or with your students and clients that come up for you as we discuss this? Have you witnessed it? Have you experienced it? Do you worry about it? Well, maybe I'll talk a little bit about my experiences of both because I've actually studied method. And it was the first thing that I studied as a technique when I came out of drama school. And what I mean by the method, I mean Strasbourg's method. Mm-hmm. And I studied that with actually a fantastic teacher called Tony Greco, who is or was Philip Seymour Hoffman's private coach. So I've studied that and therefore I actually trained in emotional recall to start with. It was the first port of call for me in my very curious journey to to find the holy grail of acting technique, and which took me to the States. And this was the most popular or at least the one that everyone knew about for various reasons. And I always felt that there was certainly a depth was achieved and it certainly could work for some people. And I think it suited certain sensibilities. 
and those sensibilities in actors being the tortured souls of such. But after I sort of trained in that and was using it, and I could never really, for me, it felt like wading through mud, because let's just, for those that don't know, Emotional Recall, which was originally investigated and created by Stanislavski, his early work, he later on disowned it and moved on to a more objective and physical action-based way of getting into emotions and acting. But it started there, and what Strasberg did was kind of he evangelized or became very evangelical about this one particular element of the work, which was emotional recall. So through Strasbourg, it became this huge thing. And I think it also, it actually hit a time in America where the psychoanalysis was really big. So I think that's why it hit a nerve, and that's why it got sort of preserved in aspic and that's why everyone was really grabbing hold of it because it was amongst the culture there at the time it was really being sort of utilized alongside one's investigations into psychology and psychoanalysis so i think that's why it became so popular amongst actors because that kind of thing was popular in culture at the time in the 1940s and 50s but emotional recall is basically the recreation of a deeply emotional event from your past so what you're doing is and it's a misconception to say that you are thinking of something from your past Emotional recall is recreating an event from your past that is deeply emotional through your senses. So what you do is through your senses, recreate like a jigsaw puzzle, the smell, the sounds, the visualizations, the touch, all of your sensory work that went to make up this event that was behind this event. So for instance, if your father was dying in hospital, then what you do is you'd recreate all the smells, the sounds that were going on in that hospital that made that experience. And you'd access it through some kind of sensory trigger. That's emotional recall, also known as effective memory. Now, it works for some people. Some people use it. There's huge actors that use it. For instance, Daniel Day-Lewis is said to use and rely rely on it. I'm not sure whether he still does. I don't know whether that's true, but that's the rumor. And there's plenty of other actors that have used it. So it can work, but at what cost? And there's various things that are stacked against it, or at least criticized. It's criticized for certain things. And one of those things is it's very traumatic. If you are bringing up something from your past that is traumatic, then that's not healthy, full stop. And it can open up a wound and it can stay with you for the time that you're working on it and beyond. And that is something maybe that is for the therapist's couch rather than your acting technique. So it has more place in psychotherapy than it does in acting. Secondly, that event that was once huge in terms of an emotion for you may well have been processed out. Mm -hmm. So it may not have the effect that it did then. Another thing is, it's not adjustable. You'll only feel one thing about how your dad beat you. So it's actually undirectable because you'll only feel one thing about it if it still works and if it is accessible. (laughs) And fourthly, which is a hugely important aspect of this, as much as all the others, but this is really important, is, you know, one's real life and real experiences are quite limited. What if you've never experienced in your life what the character is experiencing in the imaginary circumstance? Well, then you can't go to your life, can you? Let's say you've never experienced experience the death of a close family member 
If you've never experienced that and you've got to experience it in the play or the film, then you can't use your real life. So it's limited in that sense. So there's a whole bunch of things. There's a whole bunch of repercussions and things that make it not particularly user-friendly really. And the alternative, which you've mentioned, Brighton, is imagination. And that goes in a completely different direction, which allows you to drop it at the end of the night or at the end of the shoot. So if you make something up, you can drop it. Your imagination is limitless, whereas we've said that one's real life isn't. And also, which is a big thing, is, is it can appeal to one sense of play using your imagination, which we do as humans anyway. There's an organic thing. So that kind of just sets up what emotional recall is, which has often been labeled as the most unhealthy of emotional techniques. Let's put it that way. Gary, when you were practicing it, did you feel any adverse effects doing it? Or in class, did you talk to other people who did? Did you have personal experience with the negative effects of it? Or is it just kind of like this could happen? Well, I didn't have any negative effects. I had some surprising effects from sensory work, which really enlivened me in certain ways. But the holy grail that an actor often searches for is the thing that breaks them down to cry, that gets them very upset and cry and they can cry on cue and all the rest of it. And I found that it actually went the other way. For me, it just felt like I was going around a whole circuit to go all the way around to get somewhere through my senses to try and recreate something that wasn't working for me, that I felt I had to really struggle to revisualize and resensitize and all of that stuff. It just felt like very hard work. So I didn't have any adverse effects, mm -hmm. but I, it just didn't work for me. I just, right. I just, I was like, I can't, okay, I can't, I'm not emotional. It's too know. much work. It's too much work. Yeah. yeah. But I, to be fair, I saw some people who did it effortlessly and it didn't seem to affect them. But mm -hmm. I did see some scary moments where actors were really looked like they were in a nightmare. There was an effect. Obviously, they were crying and they were, you know, in despair and all the rest of it. But there was something about it which now I can kind of compare more against with all the stuff that I've done since. And it just felt it felt heavy. It felt dirty. Even though it was real, it just felt like, and this was in scenes. This wasn't just an exercise. This was things that were coming out in scenes. And I was just mm. going, hold on a minute. This seems to be the centerpiece here, your experience, rather than it sitting alongside what was going on in the circumstances and mm. coming out of something that was happening because of the circumstances, if that makes sense. Which is what you're talking about in terms of it's not really directable, because if it is a traumatic experience that is still traumatic for you, you're kind of at its mercy. You know, you, you're not really able to kind of either add some or take some away. It seems like it just is like, this is going to buckle up because we're on this ride and it's, and it's going to go where it goes. Absolutely. And that's why what's been leveled at it is that it's also can be self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's more to say, but what do you think? I was just going to ask you about the self-indulgence of it. Do you feel that sometimes it, people are drawn to it because they feel that it's a way to work things out for themselves in a format that feels creative? Yeah, I think there's a truth to that for some people. I think in my experience, I haven't seen anyone voluntarily wanting to dredge the depths of, you know, hell. But I think maybe subconsciously, yeah, once they get access to something that can perhaps fan the flames, mm -hmm. then maybe they're driven by something a bit deeper 
Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. perhaps there is. And perhaps it's a subconscious thing that is self-fulfilling and reliant so that when they discover that, oh, I can access this through this, then they get a bit sort of fond of being in it. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a kind of loop where it feeds their maybe victimhood, yes. for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it a bit when we spoke about emotional preparation in one of our podcasts, but it also feels like, as you described, being stuck in the mud. I mean, in a way, it feels like displacement, that you can't fully be present to the circumstances if you're lugging around this past story from your own life and you can't fully give over to the character's experience and the character's perspective. It's very hard to let it go, yeah. Right? If what you think you need to carry around is your own personal experience in order to fuel some sort of emotional life. Yeah. So there's a split there, right? There's a split of intention in a way, too. And I would think that is as harmful as as trying to dredge things up and experiencing things that are so catastrophic or traumatic that it, you may carry it with you, which we'll talk about as well. But this idea of trying to exist in these two different planes, trying to bring an emotional truth from your own life to bear upon an imaginary circumstance, it feels like a very stressful and forced experience. Yeah. I mean, if you look at alternatives, which I eventually found, and um, mm-hmm. after I studied method, what I then I then got introduced to Stella Adler's work and Meisner's alongside that, and I stayed with Meisner for quite a while. And you know, the use of imagination, as you both well know, it just seems to me that the use of one's imagination, which still has to draw on one's mm-hmm. experiences in the present. Mm-hmm. For me, there's a huge difference. And you talk, you know, dragging this along with you, as you say, is like, there's a huge difference between digging things up from your present in terms of what matters to you now, what is important to you and who is important to you. It's alive. It's right now, rather than things that are in the past, which, you know, in some way are dead. Mm-hmm. You may well be able to be affected or have some stirrings by thinking back. I get wistful and I think back to certain memories of childhood and, you know, it does something to me, but it's not not as vivid as something that is alive to me now. It's Mm -hmm. like now, now's what's important. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. I think if you add imagination to that, then one, the very use of imagination in stimulating one's emotion appeals to one's sense of play. Mm -hmm. We kind of do it anyway as humans naturally imagine. Yes. So we're drawing on that organic process naturally. We're just doing it more consciously on purpose for a particular reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a more natural way in even though it might take us to some distressing places still, the actual step to it isn't such a huge cavernous leap and it doesn't feel like it is paved with broken glass and mud. (laughs) 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 You know, because of that, because of course we worry, right? We worry every day. We worry about things. That's imagination because it isn't true. Mm -hmm. And when we worry in everyday life, we get panicked, we get stressed we get upset yeah we have a response to our imagination just naturally exactly and that's a natural that's a natural thing that happens so it just seems one step away to use one's imagination on purpose in order to create these things that you can perhaps control more by being able to drop them because you know that they're not real so Mm -hmm. the hold on them you can let go of right a lot easier i have a question for you guys just so this is not just 
a full podcast of us talking shit about emotional memory and and saying that using our imagination is is the best, which I think we all kind of do feel that way, that, it, that if you're going to do it, using your imagination is the way to go about it. But I have a question of regardless of the method of becoming emotional, mm-hmm. right? So let's take that as a given. You just, so however the actor got there, they are in an emotional state and our job requires us to purposefully get into an emotional state mm-hmm. And to live that out, and those emotional states might be traumatic. They might be wonderful too. But are there examples of just the process of purposefully putting ourselves in stressful, perhaps emotional states? Is that process harmful in a way? Or is there a danger with just the fact that we put ourselves in an emotional state? I think this is a bit where craft comes in, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the advantages that people who have done study have as actors is that they can take their own emotional temperatures and they will engage, you know, over the years of study or doing scene work or performing in plays, whatever it is, the the practice of it with attention to exploring how to get where you want to go allows you to develop an understanding of your own emotional instrument and your own sensibility so that when it comes time to approach a script and a scene in a certain way, you know how to craft it together and how you put yourself into that circumstance in a safe way. Something you know how to tap into what means something to you. You know, hopefully, how to function in a connected way with your acting partners. You hopefully have built up a way of being free in your work and fully responsive. And if you've got those kind of tools in your tool belt, then I think you're much better equipped to put yourself into some extraordinary circumstances and come out the other end with an acknowledgement that you went there because you wanted to tell the story in a certain way and you wanted to give it a fully lived out emotional experience in an effort to find the truth of the moment and the truth of the character and that kernel of the story. And when you have that intention clearly laid out for yourself and you have the craft that you've developed in order to get yourself there, I think you're in the best position to come out of it without any long-lasting harmful effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm reminded of what we talked about with Ben Steele in our interview mm-hmm. with Ben Steele and mm-hmm. basically the mental well-being that people in the creative industry need to have, mm-hmm. which he recommends, and I think we all agree, that you develop alongside of your development of how to become an emotional and vulnerable and alive being, which you would on purpose move into these emotional states in order to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. That alongside that, you also develop who you are as a person, Mm -hmm. which is separate from those stories. So that when you need to come out of those traumatic stories, and he even talked about that trauma by proxy, Mm -hmm. because you are living out these traumatic experiences, if you're in a piece that requires that, that you can come out and say, this is not my life that I'm living. This is a story that I'm telling. Mm -hmm. And I can go into my own life and find an anchor point in my own life that is not 
not the traumatic story mm -hmm. that I'm living out every day when I walk on stage yeah. or while I'm shooting this film. Yeah. That's a very important practice mm -hmm. to develop along with the practice of deepening your emotional instrument. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying that even with craft and experience that you may not come up against moments that really blindside you because you're in a scene and you can't let it go afterwards. It's just really staying with you and rocking your world. That can still happen in my experience. I remember shooting a scene for a comedy. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was a dramedy, I suppose. And there was one, you know, scene of reckoning with my character and my husband, the character of my husband. And we shot it. I loved my director. I loved my co-star. Really wonderful experience. But we shot that scene and I could not shake that thing. I was out on the sidewalk in front of the house we were shooting and I was just in like heaving sobs. So it was something about it that had tapped into something <laughs> really big in my life. And I needed to almost walk around the block for a while to, to let go of it. But I also knew that I needed to give myself that time to do so. I knew I had landed somewhere that was very powerful for me and it was great and it was going to serve the scene. But I also needed to get to a point of taking deep breaths and taking my emotional temperature and allowing myself time away from set to regroup and to sort of give it my blessing in a way. I know it may sound strange, but it's like you go through it and you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to share that piece of myself with this story because... And that's part of the craft too. That's that right. That is the craft. That's right. Getting that's, in and getting out. Yeah, getting out. Exactly. Well said. Getting out yeah. is also part of the craft. And that's where I think things like mindfulness can come into play or whatever it is that helps you get into the emotional state can also help you gently ease yourself out of it if need be. Have you ever been involved in a production where you were so committed to it that you had a hard time letting go at night? Yeah, I've had a crazy experience. I think I may have mentioned this way back on one of the podcasts when we did talk about it. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's similar to what you're saying. Because here's the thing. Yes, sometimes you cannot legislate for it. You can actually do all the healthy stuff. And I was working in a very healthy way that I thought using imagination and not using all of this stuff that we said may well be more unhealthy. And I didn't see it coming. But I played Claudius in a production of Hamlet. Mm -hmm. And I was working intensely on it. So I wasn't necessarily doing all Heath Ledger Joker on it. But what I was doing, I was working intensely. So every night after rehearsals, I was going over my lines. I was even in the bath going through the scene and my intentions and then preparing emotionally. So I was working very hard but diligently in what I thought was a safe way mm -hmm. and in the way that we're speaking about. But then one day in rehearsals, it's the scene where Ophelia comes in and the father's present, mm -hmm. Polonius and Claudius is present and everyone's present. Mm -hmm. And she comes in and she's lost mm -hmm. it. And I, you know, and I had my lines down and literally something just hit me because she, the actress was just on another level and she was really bringing it. And I just completely lost it. I froze and I was just there and it was my line and I couldn't think of my line. And I heard the director from the side say my line. He knew the play very well and he said my line. And I went, no, no, it's not that line. Mm. And he went, no, no, it's your line. And he said it again. And I went, that's not my line. And I, I, I would not accept that it was my line because it was foreign to me. Oh. And then the next thing that happened is the girl playing Ophelia was improvising mm -hmm. and she came up to me and she just touched me mm -hmm. and I just 
broke. Mm. And I could not. I, it was just a, a flood. Ugh. It was one of those times where it was just a complete flood. And I literally yeah. just crunched over, kneeled on the floor, and I was sobbing. Now, it would have been great if that would have been in the performance because everyone could have just waited for my lines. I would have got them eventually. I would have just gone <laughs> off. But, but you know, um, but I was in a different place. Mm-hmm. The lines were coming at me. They were going, these are your lines. And I'm going, those aren't my lines. I was literally saying, those aren't my lines. And they were. They were my lines. But I was like, they aren't. And I was emotional wreck. Mm-hmm. I was completely devastated. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of then, we only got so far with that. And I just heard the director saying, get him off <laughs> <laughs> and carry on. You know, it, it, you know, he was saying, if this is happening, then treat it as real and just get on with what happens next. Mm. Well, how did you recover from that? That's what I'm yeah. interested in. Well, what was the ramifications well, of that for well, you personally? I mean, I didn't legislate for that. I didn't plan for it. I didn't even prepare for it. It wasn't actually my scene. It was Ophelia's scene. But what happened was afterwards, I was all over the place. I was a bit sort of spaced out. And the director just said, listen, these are big things that you're dealing with and we're dealing with these big things in big deep ways and we're not presenting a Royal Shakespeare company version of this which is all jolly and presentational or representational Mm -hmm. we're going deep and it's like it's just affecting you so it'll pass you know it will pass Mm -hmm. and I went home I kind of made sure that I didn't work that night and I felt a bit vulnerable and frail, but kind of no different than I felt when I've broken up with someone I love mm-hmm. and just sat it out, watched a movie, got up the next day and it was all fine. But that scene was always from there on in, mm-hmm. I was close to tears. Yeah. So there's, there's something about it that you're alluding to, Andrea. Sometimes there is some kind of collateral damage. Not in a bad way. It's like you're going to be affected. If you're going to be involved with the great stuff and go deep with it, you are going to be affected. Mm -hmm. But you hit the nail on the head. If you've got a technique and part of that technique is to find inspiration to get into it, Mm -hmm. as you said, Brian, part of your technique is to find a way to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And that takes balance. That takes craft. That takes technique. That takes experience. And sometimes these things you can't legislate for. They just happen because you're dealing with deep currents of one psyche and they just are unleashed but i think when they do happen then go back to as normal life as you possibly can i mean i know someone who when they do intense roles the way to snap out of it because they perhaps have a slower progression out of a character than say that i might do they rely on physical things that help to shake them off Mm -hmm. And they've developed a ritual. Mm-hmm. Now, this is someone I know very, very well, yes. who I coach. And it's something that they've developed themselves. And they make sure they do something physical like yoga or they go jogging or they even go to dance. When Then this is very personal to this guy. When he finishes an intense role and he's working a lot and he's the type of actor who gets intense roles, he goes to a dance class. He mm-hmm. does like samba or something like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> you know, yeah, and that gets him in his body, right? Mm-hmm. I just read about another actor this week who was saying the same thing, describing also that that transition, literally going home after a shooting day, that there were certain physical rituals that he undertook regularly to not just remove costume and makeup, but to do it in such a way that he was literally making the choice at that moment to leave the character there before even leaving the trailer. Mm -hmm. But there was a whole ritual behind that. And the idea was to just allow some separation there. 
and some healthful embracing of quote unquote real life once he stepped out of the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Ben mentioned that too. Mm-hmm. That yeah. process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it pays to have something like that Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with the great stuff. I mean, psychological research says that negative emotions stand out more than positive Mm -hmm. and they can pose a threat because negative emotions are felt more deeply, longer and have a greater impact on the brain than do positive Mm -hmm. emotions. And we've developed these negative emotions through a survival instinct. Also, the brain will make important the thing that you focus on the most. Mm -hmm. So if you're playing Ophelia, who is prone to suicidal tendencies, and you stay with it in a certain way, and you stay with it in a certain way, and you connect with it in a certain way, and you continue to connect with it, and you don't get any distance from it at some point, then the likelihood is that it will trigger a very real depression in you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's where craft, as you say, Andrea, comes in, Mm -hmm. because it's going to happen. It's like you're feeding your brain saying, I need to be depressed, because you're giving it all the material in order to be depressed. Mm -hmm. And that psychophysical, physiological connection from the brain will then feed into one's feelings. So it's tricky and you have to be balanced and you have to tread carefully. It doesn't mean you don't go there, but it Mm -hmm. means that you've got to have systems in place to be able to pull you out when the oxygen has, you know. Yeah. Just one more question about this, because I, I don't know that we talk about this aspect of performance very often. And upcoming, we will have an episode with um, an amazing actress and stunt woman who, who I think will share some of this feedback. But, you know, when, when we're talking about violence, either that your character is visiting violence upon somebody else or is a victim of violence, do you have some tips to offer on how to approach that. Obviously, there's tips for personal safety on set. And in the stunt world, this is taken very, very seriously. But what about the emotional impact? I mean, I think back to the movie Accused, The Accused with Jodie Foster, where she was a victim of a multiple gang rape. And I made the fatal mistake of watching that at home alone one evening. And I was so thunderstruck by the film. I really had a difficult time processing it. It was so, so disturbing to me. And I think sometimes about the challenge that we face in portraying these kinds of stories. And there's plenty, as we know, there's plenty of violence in the content that's being written and created right now. Mm -hmm. So how do we find ourselves emotionally safely through the world of violence in film and television and theater? Although theater is a little bit less, um, theater is so technical, I think, sometimes in that respect that we think about it a little bit differently. When you die on stage, you do it every single night, you know? But any ideas about violence and how to how to approach it safely? I would say the same way as, as sadness. Mm-hmm. It's another emotion that if it consumes you, can cause problems. So you have to find a way of generating it and then extricating yourself from it in a way that doesn't consume you and or others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what comes to mind because i mean look at the dynamic of it okay so the dynamic of it violence can cause physical harm whereas perhaps grief might cause yourself harm emotional harm but there's very very unlikely for it to cause physical harm so it can send you off the cliff that way where you may well lose it and want to sort of throw television out of your hotel room <laughs> and stuff like that but th- there needs to be a period of decompression I suppose also, if you truly have a way of embodying it purely, then you get it off you. Mm. 
Does yeah. that make sense? Mm-hmm. You express it. If you have a technique and a craft that actually allows you to go in, mm-hmm. generate it, the white heat, and then express it purely so that then actually it's done with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't carry it with you. Then you don't carry it. Then you don't carry it with you. I mean, yeah. I had a, a, an actor recently and I was like, well, what do you do? He said, well, I, when I have a really important conflictual scene and then I'm going to shoot, I wake up in the morning and I get into it and I stay in it all day long. And I was like, ay, 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 really? Well, do that for a couple more years. Your hair's going to drop out. You're going to look like the, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and all the rest of it. And it's like, yeah. that was someone who doesn't have a technique. Mm-hmm. They recognize that they'd like to go someplace extreme in order to really tell the story and, and do it properly and do it well and go deep and get some truth. But the thing is, is you can't hold on to it all day because emotions come and go. Then it just turns in on itself. So, To me, that was a a very good example of someone, at least they recognize that they have to go someplace, but they haven't got the technique to be able to summon it shortly before they need to, or at least fairly shortly before they need to and get into it, and then they can leave it alone. That hanging on to it as the moment they get out of bed in the morning and living it all the way through until they shoot the scene in the evening, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, exactly. It's torture. Mm -hmm. It's not just torture, but it shows me that they don't have a technique and they didn't. Mm So in my experience with violence, it depends kind of on what kind of violence you're talking about. So if it is actual physical violence, usually it is choreographed. And so it is kind of like a dance that you're doing with the violent acts that you're portraying. And so the rehearsal of those acts, the rapport that you feel with the people on set, that to a large extent mitigates some of the psychological impact of the violence. Even if in the moment you're committing to the intent behind that violent action that you might be taking or the intent of receiving that violent action that you might be receiving. Now, I have actually experienced being more physically threatening on set and except for where I had to to uh, actually simulate raping someone who was actually a friend of mine and was quite, it wasn't very comfortable. That was very, I mean, it wasn't pornographic, but it was much more physical than I would would want. And it was just, even that kind of felt like a violation and, and that was actually not pleasant. But I like people to like me and the person that I was doing that to might not like me really when I did that to them. And So that, I think, is the psychological impact, for me anyway. It's not so much the act itself, unless it was incredibly explicit, but really the after effect and kind of feeling like, oh, please like me, I'm not really like that, Uh, you know, that's what I would say about the the physical violence. I'm going to think if I have been the victim of physical violence. I mean, I've been killed, you know, in multiple, (laughs) multiple projects. So I guess I have been that. And that's fun. You know, there's a play aspect to that. Mm -hmm. Gary mentioned about a freeing aspect of the process of when you actually feel something and express it. And I can't remember if this came up in Playhouse West days, but certainly subsequently in, in my own classes and in the classes that I've watched at the Actors Temple, Let's say you have an exercise with someone, and when I say that, I'm talking more about the Meisner repetition exercise, just so everyone knows, and you come out of it and you kind of are resenting them, or it's something that you kind of are going to take home and brood over, how this person treated me and how it went, then you didn't express enough in the Mm. middle of the exercise because Mm -hmm. you're holding on to it. 
Mm-hmm. So like Gary was saying, or like you were saying, it's not that there is no effect psychologically on the actor, but when you come back to being centered, it is more freeing because in the ideal world, you should have expressed that kind of bile. It's an avenue to express the bile that we all Mm -hmm. feel. Mm -hmm. One of the teachers at Playhouse West said, in struggle, there's life. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so that's where we want to be, which is in the struggle. I mean, we don't want it maybe all the time in all of our life, right? but it is not a bad thing to dip into quote unquote negative experiences that are around us. And especially when we're feeling that way because of something that we imagine, then we can come out of it into our real life and go, oof, I'm glad that's not my real life. I think most of the people that are listening to this are very lucky in that they don't have to live out their life in that place. What I'm hearing you refer to is the aspect of the complete immersion in the physical act of the thing. And that sometimes when you go there fully, that it in a way takes care of what happens next, whether it's a highly choreographed physical action in the scene it's discussed in advance and maybe with stunt coordinators and that when you just do those actions in a way your body is so focused on that that you sort of in a way maybe drain yourself emotionally so that there isn't a lot of residue left over and if you really commit in a scene or in an exercise to to expressing yourself fully that that freedom can also be the key to coming out of it safely because you've said everything that needs to be said in a safe environment, hopefully in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. And that the sort of cleansing that needs to happen gets taken care of in the actual doing of it. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Yeah. That's my experience. Mm -hmm. And now I haven't had to play roles like Gary was talking about Ophelia. Like if you're playing Ophelia night after night after night. I do think that there is something to that where you're telling your brain, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed. And Mm -hmm. after a while, your brain is like, oh, I guess we're depressed. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, I think having a very explicit sense of this is the play that I'm doing, even if I'm committing to it as fully as I can Mm -hmm. when I'm doing it, and this is my life, which is separate from that. Right. And maybe having some wonderful things in your life that you do or rituals in your life that you do to really define that separation. So I haven't had a lot of those experiences experiences, but I would think that that would help find the balance. It's a super interesting topic. I almost feel like there's a part two that we need to explore and I've got to let some of these ideas sit with me Um, because they're very powerful. And Ben talked about it in our podcast with Ben Steele when he talked about vicarious trauma that Mm -hmm. is a real thing that actors can experience. We've had our own experiences. We've seen other actors wrestle with it. And there's maybe not one size fits all. And obviously one of our goals here at the podcast is to help actors, you know, have successful and happy careers and uh, mentally healthy careers, emotionally healthy careers. And I, I wonder if there's more for us to uncover about how to make our way through this world that we uniquely visit. I mean, I think some of our yeah. listener questions, they're circling around the same topic, you know, this yeah. idea of like, where am I in my brain? Where am I in my heart? Where do I need to put my attention? What if, what if there's this whole interior 
piece of our craft, it can be so delicate. It can be also so just mighty and mm-hmm. we have to have respect for it. And we have to have respect for wielding that kind of power and energy. And we also have to continually develop our skills of empathy for one another and for our characters so that we can come to things with vulnerability and uh, openness and, and a willingness to play, as you say. Yeah. I think this is one of the deep universal questions. And it's one of the deep universal coping mechanisms that I think we have as humans, which is how much do I need to control? my environment in order to stay safe. And the question of giving over to this imaginary story that we're telling and this, you know, imagined circumstance Mm -hmm. that is going to cause trauma in us. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much do you give over to it? If you give over too much to it, will it damage you? If you don't give over enough, are you portraying it in a way that's going to be effective telling the story with our current aesthetics that we like to see in our storytellers? Mm-hmm. There are real reasons in our real lives that we keep that control. And we can't say and do whatever our impulses demand of us like we might in an acting environment. I mean, mm-hmm. in a professional, practical acting environment, you can't really do whatever you want to do anyway. Right. That is a product of trying to find your emotional and instinctual response in the context of an exercise that that is allowed. So just for anyone out there listening who hears a teacher say, you know, go with your instincts. We want to encourage that habit, but you also, (laughs) in a professional environment, as well as in your real life, especially in your real life, you need to use that tool with moderation because there are consequences to being very free. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those will end you up in a nut house, which has Mm -hmm. happened to... um, (sighs) to students that weren't able to negotiate that. Wow. You know, so it's not that it's there's no danger, but I think if you follow what we're talking about tonight, focus on the craft, getting in and getting out mm-hmm. of whatever state you're aiming for, mm-hmm. as well as having a very firm understanding of this is the acting environment, which is an imaginary circumstance. It might be an imaginary fuel to fuel your emotional state. And this is my real life, which has other rules mm-hmm. and other benefits. So I, I think that having a strong sense of that is really important when you're getting into these potentially traumatic situations. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, wow. there's definitely more to delve into. Yes, there is. There is. Thank you both so much for your insights as always. We love to end each episode with some recommendations, something we've read or seen or heard this week that we enjoy, that we'd like to pass along. Gary, do you have any great recommendations for us this week? Yes, I've got a book and that book is Elia Kazan on directing. Oh, yes. And we've mentioned Elia Kazan before, and he's someone who has a big influence on me and particularly the way he works with actors. And particularly he's, you know, one big phrase as a director, he says, I will say nothing to an actor that cannot be translated into action. And all of my work stems from that one phrase, action. Mm. And it's just a great book. Now you will find better books that spell out the technical aspects of directing, whether it's for stage or film. You just will. But it's not that kind of book. If you're looking to learn a step-by-step way of directing for stage or directing for film, then there are other books and, and better books, to be honest. But the strength of this book is that 
He is such an experienced theatre and film director that he brings with him that wealth of experience, Streetcar Named Desire, Death of a Salesman on the Waterfront. And it's a really highly readable book and it draws on all his materials, his letters, his notebooks and his lectures. And because he was such a actor-focused and actor-centric director, because he came out of the group theatre and then established the actor's studio, that there's some really good tips of ways of looking at a script as a director Mm -hmm. and really focusing on the material and his quest for precision and how to break the material down to find the basic idea or the spine, if you want to call it that. And he really explains the importance of finding this and how this really affects everything else, like the acting, the lighting, the design and the storytelling and the type of shots you want to make, as well as nice gossip where you get to hear about his war and his arguments with Tennessee Williams over various (laughs) productions that he directed. It's just a really good overall passionate, insightful look at what's important when you're directing either theatre and film. That sounds great. (laughs) Brian, what about you? Well, as I've talked about, I had spent a lot of time in a hotel room in Serbia. And, you know, I I had gotten into the Great British Baking Show and I've watched all of that. And I think it's wonderful and such a wonderful palate cleanser. And now I've gotten into another show, which is a home makeover show called Grand Designs on Netflix. Mm. And I don't know, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but (laughs) it's just when I walk down the street, I always look at houses and think when I make my millions, I'm going to buy a house and renovate it and make it exactly what I want it to be. And so this is a show, this is a show that actually features people who do have incredible amounts of money Mm -hmm. or are willing to take on incredible amounts of debt. And they are either building or renovating these incredibly designed architectural homes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a very formulaic thing where there's trouble at the beginning and it's not coming together. And then the end, it usually is wonderful and just an amazing architectural feat. But I've just been getting into it. And I like the fantasy of Mm. one day having enough money to invest in some property and really make it a wonderful house, which... (laughs) Knowing me would be uh, the upkeep would be a horrible thing because I am I am a messy person and which is I wouldn't be able to keep up a house I just wouldn't I would have to pay people to do it for me but I love the fantasy of it so that's my recommendation which is Grand Designs I don't know it's not going to be for everyone but I've enjoyed it what about you Andrea <laughs> I have been listening to some podcasts this week. And uh, I really like the Tim Ferriss show. He's very interesting and has fantastic guests. He had an episode with Jacqueline Novogratz. She's a really great thinker. She heads up Acumen. She founded the company Acumen, which is like conscious investing, combining philosophically sound approaches and sound fiscal approaches. And she's had just a fantastic conversation with him. I highly recommend it for a number of reasons. Also, I'm about halfway through listening to an episode he's doing with George Mumford. So George Mumford, maybe you've heard of him, but don't don't recognize the name. He is a mindfulness coach who had been a professional athlete. 
He has given mindfulness coaching and training and support to many professional athletes, including Michael Jordan. He was Mm -hmm. sort of the Chicago Bulls secret weapon for a a long time. Mm -hmm. And he has written quite a bit of material. And he has a very interesting story himself that I wasn't aware of. And he talks about that in this podcast. And I think for actors, you know, we've spoken about the mindset. And I really like the way he talks about mindfulness, not just as sort of this Zen place that you go into, but how you can bring the great energy and focus that's required of athletes Mm. to how you think about your acting training. And I think it can be very worthwhile for actors to listen to. So again, that's the Tim Ferriss podcast. And the episode is featuring George Mumford. As well, you know, I was looking again at some scenes from Goodwill Hunting, and especially after our conversation today, I would say take a look again at Robin Williams, one of his great performances. There's some beautiful stuff mm. there. So if you have not seen it in a while, or if you have not yet seen it, check out Goodwill Hunting. Cool. As always, we really, really appreciate our listeners getting involved and asking us questions, giving us feedback. We want to know, have you guys had any issues with some kind of struggle that you might have had or really some success that you might have had in getting into or out of an emotional state? And so definitely let us know. We're at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram. We have a Facebook page where people can keep up with us. And if you want to get in touch with us individually, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm at Brian Casp on Twitter and on Instagram. And I also have a Facebook page. And what about you, Andrea? How can people get in touch with you? I am on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And Gary, how can people get in touch with you? Well, people can get in touch with me on the social media, um, the social media. I don't know why I called it the social media. <laughs> like, like, like it's just... <laughs> It's like people call Twitter the Twitter. And yes. I'm like, it's not the oh, Twitter. The Twitter. Like it's the, the 405. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> people can get hold of me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle for all of those is at Gary Condes. Or you can, yeah, have a look at my website and drop me a line on my contact page, garycondes.com. That's great. And just so you know, we have some really great interviews and episodes coming up. If you can, tell your actor friends about the podcast. We have a great listener base, a really loyal fan base, but we would love to share the word and and increase it. So if you can, let people know about it. And until next week, we hope you stay safe and stay creative and get vaccinated when you can. Take care, everyone. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.